And thanks for preaching digitally. Thank you very much yeah. for having me. Well, praise the Lord. It's good to be here. Um, I bring greetings from St. John's Park Baptist Church to you all here this morning. Uh, I certainly am blessed to be here. And we today we want to take a quick look at the book of Ephesians, and we're looking there in chapter 5. But before we begin, I just want to uh, open up in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you so much for this day, and we thank you, Lord, for your grace towards us. We thank you for your mercy. Uh, We come before you, Lord, in humble adoration of who you are. We acknowledge you as God, and we acknowledge you as true in all that you say. And we ask, Lord, that you will open up our eyes of understanding today, that we may gather from your word both truth and instruction that we may be equipped to serve you better and matured in the faith for your name's sake and for your glory alone so lord be with us today and we ask this in jesus name amen well praise the lord it's good to be here as i mentioned and uh we're looking at ephesians chapter 5 a marvelous book in the book of ephesians And before we get to our text in chapter 5, we'll just take a quick look at the leading up because we want to understand the context of where we're at this morning uh, so that we can rightly understand the verses which we looked at. So starting off in Ephesians chapter 1, it's a beautiful uh, passage there in verses 13 to 14. It really is a celebration of God's mighty act of salvation. It's a celebration of his sovereign, divine work of how he actually saves his people from their sins. And in this uh, work of salvation, it displays and it demonstrates the power and the wisdom of God. It really is, it's a testimony of God's grace. It's a testimony of his love and of his mercy. It testifies that God is good and that God is faithful beyond measure. And we see this in Ephesians 1 because God's plan to save his people stretches from eternity past all the way into eternity in the future. And salvation is such a marvellous act because it's actually done by God himself. And we see that in Ephesians chapter 1. We see that God delivers his people. And some might even there ask, what do you mean salvation? What does it mean to be saved? Well, salvation means to be rescued, to be delivered. It is to be rescued or delivered from danger or destruction. And you might be asking, well, what is that danger and destruction? That is God's judgment. That is God's righteousness and justice that is against us because of our sin that has been committed against him. But God in his grace actually delivers us, even though our sin is against him, he takes it his own initiative to bring his son into the world to live the perfect life which we did not and could not live. And although God's punishment was crying out against us, Christ took that punishment on the cross for all of his people. He took the punishment which we deserved. He lived that perfect life. He died that perfect death. He conquered death, rose from the grave so that when we believe in him, we have eternal life. And we are forgiven and we are called children of God. How good is that? It's such an amazing work that God would actually save such undeserving people as ourselves. And it's helpful to understand the people that Paul is writing to because we can somehow relate to these people, I believe. Paul's writing to a small group of believers that are in a really dark pagan world. And they're the the minority amongst the majority. 
and often they would hear 50,000 people or so chanting pagan rituals and praises to false gods and idols. Ephesus was a place that was plagued with, plagued, sorry, with paganism and occult, everything that is opposed to Christian thinking, very much like the world we live in today. It was plagued with everything that is dark and everything that is evil in the sight of God. And it had every type of evil influence that was with uh, the works of darkness. And we see that Paul is writing to these people in order to encourage them, showing that although they may be the minority in this dark world in which they live in, that they actually possess everything that they need because their security is grounded and rooted in the eternal purposes of God. Not only that, but they have been saved by the God who created the earth and is above all things. And they possess everything in Christ. And so throughout the first three chapters of Ephesians, we see God's divine grace in sovereignly saving a people for himself. He does this amazing work of salvation that is absolutely complete. It's absolutely sure because it's grounded in the perfections of who God is. It's grounded in his perfect work that was done on the Christ in cross in done on the cross in Christ and it's completed and guaranteed by God's spirit. So we see in the first two chapters God's absolute grace that saves his people that are completely lost and without hope and we see that this grace and grace alone saves these people however we see that not only does God save people with grace, he saves them from the power of sin and from the penalty of sin, and he saves them with the purpose of serving him. And he gives them the responsibilities on how to do that. And in the second half of Ephesians chapter 4 onwards, we see that Paul turns his attention on laying out how these wonderful truths that are in the first three chapters that have miraculously saved his people should affect them in how they live today. So in other words, the first three chapters are about how God saved his people, laying out the wonderful truths of salvation and how it is by God's grace alone. And the second half of Ephesians is instructing his people in how they ought to live in light of these truths. And he starts in chapter 4 by saying, we are to walk worthy of our calling and the rest of chapters 4, 5, and 6, instructs us how that looks like. In other words, God has shown us so much grace. He's richly blessed us with eternal life. He's forgiven us, although we were unworthy, and we are now called children of God, and we are now brought into his kingdom, and God is saying, because you are mine, live as though you are one of my children. Live in light of who I am and the truths which I have presented to you. And so today we find ourselves in chapter 5, verses 8 to 14, where we read of Paul's exhortation to the Christian to walk in the light. And before we get to verse 8, we can see in verses 3 to 7 that Paul basically warns Christians to no longer live in darkness which is to be characterized by sin and disobedience. He tells Christians have nothing to do with it. Don't listen to anyone or anything that would allow you to make peace with sin or to be comfortable in living a way that is contrary to God's word. 
And so Paul not, not only uh, teaches us not to live in darkness, but he says don't even have nothing to do with it or be around anyone that would even attempt to justify such behaviours. And he gives us two main reasons as to why. And the first is because of God's future judgment, which is in verse 6 and 7. And the second is found in verse 8. So we see God has brought us out of darkness into his marvelous light. And he says, don't, don't do what you used to do in darkness. Don't live that life anymore because that is the very thing that God is coming to judge the world for. That is the very thing that God hates. That is the very reason why Christ had to die. Therefore, have no part in that type of life that you previously were once in. And the second reason why we should have nothing to do with it is found in verse 8, which is, For you were once darkness, but now you are in the light. In other words, you came from there. You were out of darkness. You were once under God's wrath. You were once enemies of God, but you're now being brought out by his grace and you're in the light. You're in his kingdom. Therefore, live as children of the light. As Peter says in First uh, Peter chapter 2, he says, But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people that you may proclaim the praises of him who has called you out of darkness into, your marvelous, into his marvellous light, who were once not a people, but now are a people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. So the idea here is that we have been saved out of enslavement to sin and we've been brought into the kingdom of our Lord and we should live in such a way as to reflect who he is because he has purchased us. He has brought us out of the condemnation of sin, out of judgment, out of darkness so that we may know him. Therefore, we should live as such. And here in verse 8, we see that the result of God's saving grace is that we are to walk in the light, which is the opposite to what we were when God first rescued us. And so we see in Ephesians 2, verses 1 to 3, I'm not sure if you want to turn there quickly, but I want to just give you a summary, because this is the clearest, most succinct picture of what we were before we were Christian or for any of those who are outside of Christ this is a God's description of who they are and so in Ephesians chapter 2 verses 1 to 3 it gives us a very clear picture of what it means to be in darkness it is to be dead in sin it is to be alienated from God and without any affection for him that's what it means to be dead in sin without any affection for God without any affection for his truth, but rather we're enslaved to everything that is contrary to him and his revealed will. To be in darkness means to be enslaved by the system of this world, to be energized and influenced by Satan himself, who is the prince of the power of the air, and also to be enslaved to the lusts of the flesh and of the mind, which has been corrupted by sin. To be in darkness is to live and behave as someone who is characterized by sin, disobedience and rebellion, and by nature, 
a child of wrath. This is God's testimony against all those who are outside of Christ. And this is what it looks like to live in darkness. And here Paul exhorts the Christian, no longer live as if you were one of them because you're not. You've been brought out of there. And the result that someone who has been made alive, because if we go back to Ephesians chapter 2, you see in verse 5 that God saves his people by making them alive out of that state because of his love, in verse 4, because of his mercy, because of his kindness and grace. He makes his people alive, brings them to himself, and as a result, his spirit transforms their lives so they are lived out to his glory and not their own. That is to say that those who are in Christ are to walk in the light and to walk in the light is to live a life that is completely contrary to what we once were, to the world that surrounds us. We as Christians are to be different and to no longer walk as those who are ignorant of the truth, but rather those who are in walking in loving submission to the truth. So we walk in the light, and the light, which, is the, which finds its source in Christ, he is the light of the world. And when we are in him, it produces certain fruits. And what are those fruits? In verse 8, they are goodness, righteousness, and truth. And we should stop right there and just be amazed at God's power and wisdom in how he actually saves a people out of being in that corrupt state where people were enslaved to their sinful nature, enemies of him, with no regard to him, and then all of a sudden he makes them alive and brings them to himself and causes them to walk after him in the light. And as time goes on, as the Christian matures in the faith, they produce fruits of righteousness. And this is only due to the power and wisdom of God himself. So it's amazing that the things that God produces in the Christian is the opposite to everything that we once were from birth. The fruit of walking in the light is in verse 9, sorry, is in all goodness, which is the opposite to wickedness. The fruit of light is gracious, kind, godly character, which is marked with sincerity and integrity. So at one stage we were evil without any regard to God, doing whatever we wanted to do. But when God saves a person and draws them to himself, they are to walk in the light, which means to walk according to all that is written, to walk with integrity and sincerity. And this wipes out, of course, my friends, we know uh, one of the things that the churches is plagued with these days is the hypocrite. And one of the things that we see through, throughout the Gospels that God hates the most is hypocrites. But here we see that Christians are called to serve God from the heart with genuine truth, with genuine sincerity and integrity as opposed to outwardly going through the motions as if God were pleased with what we could do that wasn't from the heart. But not only that, God calls us to walk in the light which produces righteousness, which is the opposite to injustice. The fruit of light is to always do what is right. So when we walk in the light, we should be constantly considering how can we do what is right? 
not just do whatever we want and aimlessly walk through this life, but consider out of our love for God, out of what he's done, to walk according to what is right. And that is, of course, according to the third characteristic of walking in the light, which is truth, which is the opposite to lies, error, and hypocrisy. The fruit of walking in the light is a life lived out according to what is written. And so this is the character and conduct of what it looks like to walk in the light. It is a life that is single-minded and seeks to live to God, for God's glory and God's glory alone. And this is a result of God saving someone and drawing them to himself because ultimately it is God's light and God's power that produces such radical transformation where one would forsake their sin and come to him and serve him from the heart. This transforming power that comes through the knowledge of God and his saving power is powerful and it's miraculous and it transforms someone in such a, such a way that they no longer seek to live for themselves but completely want to be devoted to Christ. Their new goal is in verse 10, which is finding out what is acceptable to the Lord. So we see in verse 10, the idea here is that the Christian is living out their life driven by goodness, driven by righteousness and truth, and applying all of these fruits to every area of life and always seeking to do what is pleasing to him who has purchased him and saved him and brought him to himself. So Christian, can we ask the question, is that us? Are we a person that sincerely seeks to walk through our life and ask the question, am I doing what is pleasing to the Lord? When it comes to our marriage, when it comes to the way we raise our children, when it comes to the way we treat one another, when it comes to the way we are in the workplace or at university or at school, are we consciously walking through our lives and acting and conducting ourselves in such a way that we live single-mindedly to do what is pleasing to God? This is the goal of the Christian. And can I add that practically in our day-to-day -day lives, this is what should mark a Christian. It should drive our speech. It should drive our conduct. It should drive our marriages. It should drive the way we raise our children. It should drive the way we treat one another. Our goal as children of God is to walk in the light and to do what is pleasing to him, which is to walk in submission to his revealed will and not our own. And it's amazing how someone can be changed and transformed when they have that attitude as opposed to the one who is very apathetic and, and not really caring about what they do. It's amazing that Sorry, I keep forgetting to look at the camera. I can't help it. I'm, I'm not used to talking to the cameras. But it's amazing how we can forget to look at the camera when I've already been told twice. <laughs> now, it's, it, it is amazing the result that we can get from actually consciously making an effort to do what is right and what is pleasing to the Lord. Just as, as, a, as, um, as an example, you look at the person who is, is, doesn't care about their health, doesn't watch what they eat, and, and is not interested in staying fit or healthy, you'll see the difference between that person and the one who is very conscious about what they eat 
exercises regularly, you'll see the difference between those two people. You'll see their difference in ability to physically do things and their ability to be able to um, participate in their day-to-day -day activities. There is a big difference in someone who makes an effort and someone who is apathetic. And the difference grows year by year towards those who are apathetic, grows this much, or maybe grows the other way towards those who actually fear God and genuinely really want to serve him and grow and do what is pleasing to him, that person grows in leaps and bounds because they're seeking their best to live in submission to his truth. And with submission to his truth comes power and growth and maturity. And that's ultimately what we want to see and that's what Paul's talking about here. He wants to preserve the purity of the church and the maturity of his people. So it is a natural consequence as not only loving the truth and walking in the light that we would have, in verse 11, have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness but rather expose them. So it is a natural consequence of walking in the light that one, we will hate darkness and two, by our very nature of being in the light, either directly or indirectly, we will expose the darkness. Now, there's a number of different interpretations on this verse in verse 11. And it does appear to be talking about Christians' responsibility within the body to come to other Christians, those who profess Christ, and convict them, correct them, and exhort them to live lives worthy of the calling. And this indeed is true, uh, whether or not. But there's another couple of points that you see as far as a Christian who is walking in the light and the truth of God's, wit, uh, God's word. We should bring it to bear witness, first of all, on our own lives. This is something that so few Christians do, to expose the errors and the lies and the hypocrisy in our own lives. So the truth should first of all affect us, the condition of our heart, the condition of our thinking, the conduct of our lives. And as a result, we are then mature and equipped to be able to help our brother and to help others within the church. So the Christian zeal to walk in the light and to do what is pleasing to God should result in the same measure of zeal to have nothing to do with darkness. So a Christian is not only zealous to walk in the light and to do what is right, but a Christian is zealous to not participate in anything that is evil, anything that will hinder their maturity, anything that will compromise their relationships uh, with one another, or even that temporary uh, compromising with God himself. But a Christian is wholeheartedly seeking to do what is right and pleasing to God. Can I say this, that as a Christian should have, should bring light to darkness in three, three different areas. One, first of all, as I've already mentioned, by examining ourselves and bringing truth to bear upon our own lives. And the question always is, is how many Christians do that? How many Christians examine their day-to-day -day lives, the way they treat their husbands, their wives, the way that they talk at work, their attitudes of their heart and how they respond to certain circumstances and, sub and, and ask the question, is this pleasing to God? 
Is this out of submission to his word? The person that does that will grow, as I mentioned before, and mature in leaps and bounds. So the first goal of a Christian should bring the light to bear upon their own lives and cause maturity and growth in their own lives so that we ourselves as Christian will put to death the deeds of the flesh and pursue to live holy, righteous lives unto God. And secondly, by coming alongside one another to help the purity and the maturity of the church. A Christian, as, as one who walks in the light, has the responsibility to come along other Christians and to bring the truth to bear on their lives as well. You don't let them sit there in sin and apathy, but rather you lovingly, graciously, thoughtfully, patiently come alongside that person because you love them and you bring the truth to them so that they too may grow and mature in the faith with you because that is the goal of the church purity and maturity and we cannot do that if we are not growing in righteousness we cannot do that if we're not examining ourselves and putting to death the deeds of the flesh and pursuing righteous living we will not grow at all so we need to help ourselves ask for God's help so that he may mature and grow us and we need to help one another so that we can all grow and mature in the faith and that is one of the greatest blessings of the body of Christ that we come alongside and we encourage one another, we edify each other, we convict one another, we rebuke one another, and we all grow and mature in the faith together because this is the will of God, our sanctification. And thirdly, we should bring the light of the gospel to the lost, to a dying world out there, because God, as we read in Ephesians chapter 1, has chosen a people has elected them even before, he even before he created the world and they will come to him and they will be his people and they must hear the gospel. They must hear the gospel. No one can be saved apart from the gospel and the only people that have the gospel is the church. The church must go out. The church needs to preach the light of Christ, the message of salvation to the lost and hurting world because if they don't, who can? Who will? but it is the church's job to bring the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, to the lost and dying and desperately needy world. This is the Christian's responsibility as they walk in the light. We expose darkness because darkness brings about the judgment of God. And so we know that when we come and we bring the light of truth to our brothers and sisters or to the lost we know that we can do it compassionately we know that we can do it graciously why because we were once dead in our sin we were once alienated from God we were once ignorant of the truth ourselves but by the grace of God he has brought us to himself he has given us truth he has made us alive so now we too can go and do the same thing and it is our responsibility to do so it is our responsibility to walk in the light and to expose darkness. Why should we expose darkness? Well, as we've already mentioned, it brings about the judgment of God and it stops the maturity and the purity of the church. And why? 
verse 12 says it's even shameful for us to speak of those things which are done in secret. It's not only a Christian's responsibility to walk in light and have nothing to do with darkness, but it is the light of Christians that exposes darkness. And it is the only light that can show darkness for what it is. Evil doesn't come alongside evil and expose evil. They party and celebrate together. It is the light that comes along and bears witness of darkness that it is indeed dark. And that light not only brings truth, but it can expose darkness and it can bring life. And there's a very good picture of the gospel in what God does when he saves a person. He brings them out of darkness by shining the light of Christ into their heart in such a way that they see their sin as sinful. They see God as holy. They cry out for mercy and they come to him in faith, in repentance, and they believe in him who has saved them. So a Christian not only has the responsibility to walk in the light, but to expose darkness because it is darkness that is a deadly disease amongst us and the only cure it has is the light. Even as verse 13 says, it is only the light that can do this. And we read in verse 13, but all things are exposed are made manifest by the light. For whatever makes manifest is light. As Christians, we are to walk in the light, no longer live in darkness or hypocrisy or anything that makes peace with sin, but we are to live according to our new nature and according to the light of truth, which is the goal of our sanctification. And finally, we see that Paul cites in verse 14, he cites a Christian hymn saying, Therefore, he says, awake you who sleep, arise from the dead and Christ will give you light. I believe the purpose for this is to admonish and exhort believers to no longer be passive and apathetic in their Christian walks, but rather pursue purity and maturity in the Christian faith and to be single-minded in their desire to know God and to serve him. And today, the exhortation to all of us who are listening is the very same. That we may be a people that seek purity, that seek maturity, that put to death the deeds of the flesh, have nothing to do with darkness, have nothing to do with anything that will hinder us in our walk with Christ, but seek to do what is pleasing to the Lord and Him alone. Keeping in mind that all we do as Christians either rises or falls according to our maturity. Have you ever noticed that, that one person can face the exact same circumstances as another person depending upon their maturity and it determines their response? It's like being in a fight. Someone who is strong can take a lot of punches and still stand form and still move forward. Those who are weak, a little tap on the ear and they're crying like a baby. And that's the difference between the mature Christian and the immature Christian. God brings all types of circumstances into our life. And if we are mature, we are able to stand firm. We're able to worship God and to reflect truth to him and to do uh, what is righteous and helpful in any given moment. But rather, if we are immature, we end up making a bigger mess on virtually every given situation. 
for example, you know what happens when an argument takes place. You know, the immature person will just keep arguing and provoke the person more and make them more angry and the fight will get bigger and bigger and the gap will get bigger. Whereas the mature Christian knows a gentle answer turns away wrath. A Christian person knows humility and meekness. A Christian person knows patience, compassion. These are the things that help the Christian in their day-to-day -day living. What is it? Maturity. So what should our goal be as Christians? What God's goal is? Maturing in the faith. And this means putting to death the deeds of the flesh, forsaking all that is in darkness and living lives according to what is written and seeking to do single-mindedly what is pleasing to God and him alone. And so just quickly, because we do have a few more minutes, how can we do this? Well, to walk in the light, we need to be connected to the one who is in the light. And we should ask ourselves simply this, how much time do we spend in prayer with the Lord? And I ask that question not to condemn you or to make you feel bad, but just so that you know because it's a starting point. Wherever that is, how much time do we spend with the Lord in prayer? As Christians, we need to be in prayer. We need to be connected to the Lord. We need to be reading his word so that this intimate relationship with God changes us and transforms us and helps us mature and grow in the faith so that in our day-to-day -day living, we can live as children of the light. But if we're apathetic, if we're lazy, if we're sluggish, if we don't take hold of the Christian graces that are there for us, what are they? Things like reading the word, listening to preaching, fellowship with other Christians, evangelism, prayer. If we're not doing these things, how can we expect to grow? It's like a plant that's put in a dungeon, no water, no light. How will it grow? We as Christians must pursue everything that seeks to help us mature and grow in the faith. And our prayer here today should be simply this. May God grant us the grace that we need to do his will and to do it faithfully to the end for his glory and his glory alone. Let us pray. Father, we thank you so much that you are such a good and faithful, kind and generous God. And Lord, we thank you that you saved us by grace and grace alone. And we pray, Lord, that you may grant us the grace and wisdom that we need in order to serve you faithfully in all things. Lord, you know our hearts, you know our minds, you know exactly where we're at. Help us where we're at, Lord. Intervene. Provoke us, Lord, that we may seek you with our whole heart. Cause us, Lord, to seek you and to know you. Give us a greater affection for your word and to do your will. Give us a greater affection to pray and to pursue godliness. Give us a greater affection to love you and to love one another. Change our hearts, we ask, Lord. Transform us for your name's sake and for your glory alone. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.